All right, we are live, and I, I still don't know how to make the, the clip. No, you know what? I'm going to try it. Okay, that's me figuring out how to use the studio. A few seconds late, but that's okay. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm I'm here today with uh, Leo Biddle, and uh, I, I'm going to let Leo introduce himself. But I'm going to uh, mention everybody. Um, Leo gave a presentation. Um, this was before I, I ever really talked with him. I uh, gave a presentation with Pandata that I was fortunate enough to to listen to, and it was for me one of the best presentations that I've watched during the pandemic because it was all information from an angle that I knew nothing about or or you know maybe maybe two percent about um but it it you know he has a lot of information from the animal world and I'm gonna let him introduce himself and explain why that is thanks Matthew so well uh, I, I guess I've been doing a lot of different things but mostly I've been known for running an orangutan charity in Borneo for the last 17 years um, we, we work with sort of rescue and rehabilitation of not just orangutan, but any endangered species that comes through. So things like sun bears, macaques, gibbons, crocodiles, literally any protected wildlife. And the center based in the north of uh, Borneo uh, that, that I'm mainly focused around and where my charities are based um, is by far and away the busiest rescue center for wildlife in all of Borneo. So whilst that's been quite a, a traumatic at times environment to work in, uh, it's given me kind of front row seats on on quite a quite a plethora of very very rare and often forgotten about animals. So whilst the orangutans, what we're known for, and certainly the the thing that attracts the funding and sort of uh, gets us invited to speak on things, probably a lot of my knowledge is more on some of the other sort of critters that that come through that are are kind of missed by the world to a large degree. Uh, and, and we get a whole bunch of different primates. About fifteen different primates come through any busy time, and this will lead into where our conversation goes. We might have anywhere between 200 primates to, to 2,000 primates at the center. So it's certainly very busy. We, we get a lot of uh, uh, monkeys and apes come through. And so you you pretty much know the world of people who who take care of primates around the world. Yeah, very much so. So it's uh, particularly the great apes, I would say. Maybe not as much the other primates, but the orangutan, gorilla, chimps, and uh, bonobos. We're a relatively close-knit community. I, I guess the community is not that large. So, you know, every now and then you'll have an international conference and everyone will turn up. And over the years, you know, so you might have people that work with gorillas for 10 years and then they move, move across to chimpanzees or, as I did, to, to orangutan later on. So you still see the same people popping up. It's a relatively small network, I would say. Yeah. Uh, uh, years ago, I, I met, meaning that I was uh, two feet away from uh, the first gorilla to, to uh, uh, have open heart surgery. Oh, wow. Okay. Where, and where was that? In an American zoo, I guess? Or? Yeah. Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I, that's been done for, I guess, uh, more than two decades now. I can't remember for sure how old I was when um, when I was at that zoo. But anyhow, um, well, thanks for joining us today. Um, I'm going to let you um, steer the ship a little bit because I, I don't know where it is that you would start with with uh, you know your presentation or the information that you've got put together. Um, but I'm, I'm going to, um, uh, yeah, actually, no, I, I'm, I'm going to let you start and I, I've got a couple of slides, but I'm going to let you share and, uh, and go where you want for Did the you moment. Want me to run through the presentation, Matthew, or just have a discussion around it. 
Um, it, it's up to you. I, I think it would be good to, to have the slides up and and to be able to you know share what it is that we know, like what happened in 2020. You know where were what animals were getting coronavirus, new, you know SARS-CoV-2 in particular, COVID, and um, you know what we know about that, and then what happened moving into 2021. Because well, maybe I, I could start off with, with sort of establishing where, where I was at in this. So around uh, October, November, December, there was a lot of noise coming through both the primate conservation groups, but also the veterinary channels that I'm associated with saying, watch out, you know, this is the big one. This is going to be terrible. Uh, protect your great apes. And then maybe I got a bit of a, a, a head start from a lot of other people in, in being largely responsible for the care of a lot of critically endangered animals. When someone said, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is coming, um, that it's like, well, okay, but better, you know, pay close attention to this because regardless of how severe it is to humans, we would expect it to be far more severe to great apes. So wait, which months were, were this? It was the last part of 2019. People were constantly talking about, you know, something big is coming in. And, and to be honest, I found it a little bit strange, Matthew. It was like I was being contacted by people I hadn't been contacted by for, for years. And everyone was banging on about, you know, how serious this was going to be. And That sounds like before... Yeah, before we had any kind of news about this, I think before the public paid attention to it, I think I had a good two, three months on, on top of them. That the, the fear mongering was rife throughout the conservation community. So you, you, all the way in September 2019, o October, October, October 2019. Yeah. Wow, interesting. And and people already had decided that it was going to be severe. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I did take it quite seriously because, you know, I, I'm not a, a qualified vet. I've been working unofficially as a vet for about the last 15 years, and I've run a few small veterinary teams and have quite a lot of experience. But because you're not qualified, you tend to defer to the judgment of others. You know, like, well, if you guys think it's serious, I better start looking at this now so that I can, you know, by working harder, get up to speed and, and be ready for it. And it, it really didn't look right, Matthew, for, from the very outset, you know, where... Uh, yeah, and, and actually, as it happens, so, sorry, we're tangenting a bit, but um, in November, December, something did come through quite quickly through the center, and it, it made a lot of the staff sick. We lost quite a few birds. We actually didn't um, have very many sick primates, but I did have three primates that died from something that at the time, we, we don't have diagnostic capability where I am. It was like, well, it appears to be viral. It's moving very, very fast. And before we could even keep, uh, you know, come up with a treatment option for it, it had already gone through the center, you know, uh, and through most of the city in Kuching, uh, where I was based. So, yeah, November, December, it came through quite hard. Uh, and then things were quiet until they locked down again in March. Interesting. Now, I, I'm, yeah, I'm looking back. Uh, I just looked this up. The Wuhan, the military world games that were held in Wuhan when we were told that Wuhan was a ghost town at that time, that was October 18th through 27th. Yeah. So the fact that you were hearing in October that something is coming and it's going to be big. Well, I, you know, so let me just caveat that. I haven't got an exact first date. I, I know that long okay. before I went back to the UK in January, we'd already been talking about it extensively and for some period of time. So exact date, I, I would put it around October, but it uh, could, could easily have been the end of. It'd be interesting if you could look that up, like see what your furthest back email is. You don't have to do that right now, but uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I was thinking the same thing. Is like, is there a nugget there somewhere that? Yeah. Right, right. I, I'd be very curious. And now, so you did see uh, an illness come through in November of 2019. 
of very very minor impact although it was no it was a stiff flu for the humans you know a lot of humans uh um you know were, were off with uh quite strong flu symptoms i would say but the apes were getting sick also no uh it, it hit the bird population we had a number of birds die quite rapidly but actually with birds in a rescue center they can come in so stressed you're not entire you can't necessarily say that it was uh, down to a virus it wasn't so much uh, residential animals and then we had two quite old primates die and we did have one young orangutan die it's extremely rare for, for me to have an orangutan die but at the same time with no diagnostic capability there's no way to say that it did actually die from this it could have died from any number of things it was very young okay and what about the previous couple of years like 2017 2018 did you ever see anything like an illness that might have been Similar, and I ask this question because I'm still not convinced that 2019 was the year that SARS-CoV-2 really started. In the 17 years there, we never had a significant biological outbreak of anything, you know? Okay. And in 17 years dealing with now tens and tens of thousands of animals, I've seen plenty of trauma, uh, you know, bullet wounds, dog wounds, animal maulings, cage injuries. I've seen infections from those, but actually the last two and a half years, I've been talking to a lot of people as I go through it, I haven't really had any experience with disease, which is strange given the, the huge number of animals we have living in often less than ideal conditions, mixed species living on top of one another, the primates, the supposed sort of close vector that we're meant to be. I've seen coughs and colds move through the primates, but nothing significant. You must take good care of them. So you've got some slides to uh, to share with us that we yeah, can talk sorry. through. I can pull up that presentation if you like. Um, and perhaps um, uh, while you're getting that out, um, I, I may share one briefly that I may have lost track of where I was keeping it. Um, I saw uh, animals around the world that had had coronavirus. And I don't know if you've seen this or not. This map. Oh, uh, there we go. Add to screen. Okay, so we've got we've got this map of where animals got sick around the world. Uh -huh. What do you notice about this map? It's very heavily. Uh, hang on, where am I going? Ungulate based, based on uh, that one big uh, red, but uh, American dominated, I would say. Yeah, and Western dominated in particular. Not really much going on in China. I guess there's a claim of a small number of cats and dogs. I don't know if that's a pangolin down there. I don't know if that's a bat up there. I, I, I think it is. I, I don't know. I, I'm not certain. Uh, or maybe it's not. I don't, I, don't, I don't even think they'd put bats up there. But, um, you know, of course, we all heard about the minks, right, and, and lab rats. Those are, those are two that we heard about in the Western media. Um, you know, specifically, you know, there was an article about Harvard labs culling, you know, all the rats yeah. and, you know, in preparation. Like, I, I, I don't know why they would know to do this necessarily. Um, you know, may, maybe coronavirus outbreaks always sweep through rats, but usually they just don't care because it's not a novel coronavirus. Um, but the minks were always an interesting story to me. You know, why didn't we see anything like that in China? As far as I, as far as I understand, you know, at the wet market and everywhere around that area of Wuhan, there's still not one animal tested positive. 
I, I think on that that distribution map you showed there, there's two things. One, you know, the West spends a lot more money and has a lot more institutions running tests. A lot of the developing world's just not going to bother testing, you know, uh, animals to the same degree. Um, what is odd, though, is it doesn't follow the sort of um, biodensity sort of of um, or the biomass of animals. So you would expect if you were testing evenly across all areas, it would come from the tropics. You know, that that's where you'd see it all because that's where the bulk of wildlife lives. So to have it sort of uh, distributed over temperate climates where you don't have the same, you know, density of animals, you don't have the same sort of distribution of animals, that to me looks to be more of a, an artifact of testing. Uh, that, that may be. Um, however, you know, we've been sold this idea that China has way better testing capacity now than we do. That they sudden that they ramped this up. You know, my understanding was at the beginning of the pandemic there were something like twenty five thousand PCR labs in the world, and maybe uh, a third of those were in the U.S. Um, but that China got real good at doing it, so good that in uh, Xinjiang, uh, we were told that they tested four point seven million people in forty eight hours. I don't know if you remember that story. No, I don't remember that. That that's quite a, a hard to believe statistic. I would suggest. It's extremely hard to believe, and they only came up with a hundred something. I, I can't remember the exact number, but I think it was one hundred thirty-six positive tests, which never made sense to me because there is no test that I have heard of that would give you anywhere close to that many false positives. Correct. Uh, you know, it, it would. Uh, excuse me. Um, meaning that the false positives would be way higher. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you would need an amazing test to have false positives as low as one thirty-six meaning that you would assume that you have no outbreak there at all, right? Well, that would, that would mean a million samples. It's, it's insane. It, it defies belief that you couldn't have uh, that many more, uh, 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 that you wouldn't have far more false positives. So, yeah, yeah numbers the, the throughput def defies belief, too. Um, yeah, you know, testing that many samples. I mean, that's that's literally at a level that at the beginning of the pandemic that might have taken all the PCR labs in the world. <laughs> to well, it, it, if, if where you said that China is leading the world on testing, I guess it depends what you're considering the value of that test is. You know, if it's like DNA uh, sort of evidence to be submitted to court, they probably don't have the capacity. If it's a cheap and cheerful, stick this up your nose and, you know, uh, lick a finger and wave it in the air and we'll tell you if you've got something. Yeah, maybe, you know, if you give them out like lollipops, maybe you give away 4.7 million lollipops, right? Maybe so, maybe so. But uh, I can't imagine you would get uh, 136 false positives only. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so do you have your slideshow for me to add to the stream here? Yeah. Let me share screen there. How does that look? Uh, I don't see it yet. Okay. I should have told you to keep it up when we were in the studio. We, we should have uh, done right. Uh, in the meantime, um, I'm going to talk about the minks just in case anybody um, hasn't heard that story. Millions of minks were called and uh, minks are one of the animals that were suspected of being able to harbor and be um, a reservoir for the virus. Um, but given that this virus spread so quickly around the world, it seems like a completely futile attempt at doing much of anything, which just means that they destroyed the lives of millions of minks, which might be like, you know, I don't even know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billion dollars. Um, it, it, it almost it, it almost is more consistent with a hypothesis of economic sabotage than a hypothesis of actually trying to control coronavirus spread.
yeah, well, the culling of those mink as well, Matthew, if I remember it correctly, it was that they're a danger to us. The, you know, the, they're, they're going to hold this, uh, you know, disease and then spread it back out to humans from the right. animal reservoir. But this right. is right. a time that all countries were already saying, oh, we've got 10,000 cases here, 5,000 cases there. It was already global and disseminating. So what's the point in culling millions of mink? It, it made no sense whatsoever. In the same way that I don't think enough was made that when everyone shut the borders and all of these countries are testing, you know, tens of thousands of people positive, it's like, well, who cares if someone else brings it in? It doesn't make any sense if it's already there and spreading. You're not going to make it any worse by having, you know, one extra person or even thousands of extra people come in. I've also been wondering about the white-tailed deer in yep. the U.S. Um, the white-tailed deer population, uh, supposedly the, the positive uh, signals have been going up and up. It was like 40% and then it was 70%. And I and from all the research that I've seen, outdoor spread of coronavirus is very rare, Absolutely. which made me wonder, is there something about deer where, the, where it might spread differently? Or like, where did they get it in the first place? Is there something with wastewater going on? Uh, but it, it's just, it's such an enormous proportion of the population to happen so quickly. Right. I mean, the 40 percent of the white tailed deer population was infected, you know, perhaps before 40 percent of Americans were infected. Mm -hmm. So I I, I, I fear again, it might be fear mongering. You know, I mean, was it making the deer sick? Was it making the mink sick other than to have, you know, sort of runny noses and stuff like that? If at all, I think it was just part of the fear. This thing spreading everywhere. No one's safe. You know, uh, primates aren't safe. Deer aren't safe. Diseases everywhere. So did you find those slides? I've, I've pulled them up again. Can you see them now? Uh, not yet. They're not on the studio for me to share. Oh, am I doing something wrong? Oh, sorry. I'm trying to share my screen. Is that the wrong way or should I share slides? Um, it may it may be that, that button down in the middle, uh, the buttons at the bottom of the studio. Uh, settings, share. Yeah, that share. How about that? There we go. Perfect. Okay, so walk walk us through the most interesting information that you've compiled. Well, one thing that it is more, I put it up there as a conflict of interest, but one thing I noticed, uh, I, I've been doing great ape conservation for almost the last 20 years. Um, <clears throat> it's an area where we have fetishized or obsessively been wearing masks and absolutely normalized it. And indeed, myself, when I, I first got on board with uh, orangutan conservation work, we have this group called IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Uh, that's kind of like <clears throat> the WHO, if you like, of animal science and animal health. So you read all these, you know, um, uh, formats, recommendations on the best way to work with the great apes and keep them safe. And everybody recommended face masks. So being quite naive, you know, coming in at this time, I tried to follow all of the best rules, obviously, to keep the animals safe. But after a few years of working around, you know, seeing, wearing face masks myself, forcing all of my staff and government partners to wear face masks, anyone that visited any of the areas around the apes would get them to wear these face masks. I started just naturally being curious about, like, how effective is this piece of paper on my face in stopping spreading, you know, d disease? So then you know, looked into it after about three, four years, perhaps, of working with the apes, and then was like, well, this is just nonsense. It doesn't make any difference whatsoever. <clears throat> But I continued pushing it um, because what I did realize is uh, I worked in some pretty rundown places, you know, where biosecurity is non-existent. 
a lot of unfortunately you know places in the developing world that hold themselves up to be conservation centers a little more than petting zoos or, or you know standards can be just shockingly low in government rescue centers in the developing world particularly if they have a high you know volume of animals come through so i became a little bit of a mask uh, nazi you know 20 years ago forcing people to wear masks because i noticed it changed their behavior um, I didn't think it made any difference to the transmission of disease via, you know, fomite or droplet infection, uh, given that, you know, these things are meant to move around by aerosolized transmission. But I did realize it professionalized the working space. It made every it, it made tourists that might be around less likely to try and get close to the animals. It made staff, you know, put on their best behavior when they went into, you know, animal night then. So, yeah, the great ape community has been pushing masks for the last 20 years. And I wouldn't say we're a particularly significant influence on the population, but we're generally quite well liked people that work with great apes, generally great apes are liked all around the world. And we really seeded and normalized this idea, you know, going back 20 years that to keep things safe from disease, you wander around in, you know, uh, gloves with gloves and face masks on. That I only- Psychologically, masks put <laughs> tourists on their best behavior. Absolutely. And my own staff, my own staff from watching them. Uh, yeah, it, it, there's a bit for uh, we, we run these volunteer programs that are essentially sort of two week or four week uh, tourism pro programs where people come over to help us out. They don't work directly with the animals, but they might do things like making enrichment or cleaning the cages and we get them to wear the masks. And I would see that quite a few, you know, tourists, volunteers coming through. They feel almost like I'm not a surgeon for a day, but it's a little bit of equipment. You, you feel like you've got your uniform on, you know, it made people behave differently. So through 2020, um, how much did you hear about animals around the world dying from COVID? Nada, zero. And I was so I was hounding many of my colleagues because I thought it was strange when they shut down human society. Uh, but after two weeks and not seeing any impact after the lockdowns were implemented, I was becoming uh, irate, it would be fair to say, but extremely excitable and screaming out to people like this is wrong. And I was naively thinking that if all of the great ape practitioners, as I say, were quite well liked, came out and said, look, it hasn't impacted on our apes. It hasn't hit us. Uh, something seems to be very wrong with all of this. I, I thought we might all speak out uh, uh, together and maybe nudge the world back to not so much sanity. I think back then we just felt a lot of us that, oh, they just don't understand. People are overreacting. If we just show everyone that there's not such a big deal going on, um, then everyone will come to their senses. But but obviously that was the naivety of that first uh, uh, year. But I stayed in very close contact for the first six months with everyone I knew, zoos and wild uh, settings, as well as monitoring you know, the, the uh, documents they were putting out everyone reported the same thing nothing zero impact in any of the great apes but then as i became increasingly vocal and speaking out a lot of people quite quickly disassociated themselves from me and uh, i said look you know we, we can't be talking to you if you're saying that covid's not going to kill every great ape on the planet in the next five minutes so after your career after you've spent your career doing this stuff for years and years uh suddenly you're canceled within the the world of animal caretakers very much taking care of thousands of animals, um, yeah. thousands of, of apes, uh, great apes, uh, and uh, and managing staff. Uh, you're canceled in that world for saying uh, there's no pandemic amongst the great apes. Well, amongst my apes and my primates, definitely there was none. Um, as you know, my colleagues were self-reporting to me, there was none between theirs either. So yeah, it was absolutely 
obvious that this thing wasn't hitting the great apes. Uh, and I, I, you know, this was going throughout all of 2020. So by the end of the year, <laughs> some colleagues would say, oh, we, we've, you know, improved our protocol. We're washing our hands more vigorously. And it's like, if your staff are getting it and the apes aren't getting it, it's nonsense, you know? Um, yeah, the, the, there was no impact. And I, I would say, actually, I was ridicule, ridiculed. I'm sure, you know, at some point you must have been, you know, warned or called a granny killer. So I got called that as well, but also got called an orangutan killer uh, uh, as well, that I didn't care about great apes. And, you know, I was subjecting them and the wider conservation of them to, you know, ridiculous risk by suggesting that they weren't at significant risk from this disease. So then what changed in 2021? I think I gave up talking to people after that point and perhaps went through a slightly obnoxious phase as well of saying, look, if you're not speaking out by now, you're part of the problem. Um, the, the, there was a bit of a slight difference in 2021 in that I was monitoring all the news reports on great ape infections. And there were a couple in American zoos that were reported mild, you know, asymptomatic or mild symptoms. And nothing was said to have died in 2020, a great ape wise. But then in 2021, after a whole bunch of them, um, you know, had an experiment uh, uh, conducted upon them, then there was a, not a huge uptick in mortality, but there was a perhaps, I don't know, a, a threefold increase in, in newspaper reports of animals, apes in zoos getting sick. Uh, but in this case, many of them died. And it was exclusively, I think, the ones that had been injected, you know, not that long before. Okay. And with great apes, I should add, that was very much an American phenomenon. Most zoos and, and facilities around the world didn't take to injecting their apes, but the American zoos, I'm pretty sure it's San Diego Zoo that was first, but by about Feb 2021, zoos were starting to inject uh, not just their apes, but many animals in earnest. Okay, so vaccinations were rolled out for zoo animals in 2021, and then suddenly you see a lot more in the news about animals getting sick and animals dying. I've seen, I've seen a number of reports of animals dying in zoos. Um, yep. You know, I, I, I don't go through the, the regular news all that much, but it's hard not to notice. No, there, there were a number, uh, specifically in those zoos, you know, ironically, that had, had quite a lot of media uh, reports about, oh, we're doing this to save the apes, we're injecting them. Literally six months later, they were running reports of them dying after a short illness, you know, uh, some of them quite young as well. I remember one of the gorillas that died was only 24 years old. And uh, I'm sure that one was found, you know, uh, uh, organ abnormalities and clots throughout the entire body. And you're like, wow, that's not normal for a, a, a relatively young gorilla in captivity. Yeah, clots throughout the body. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Um, so show us uh, some of your more interesting slides here. Well, I, I just, this is a bit of a historical one just to go back. So uh, most people are familiar with Aldous Huxley, you know, writer of uh, Brave New World or author of Brave New World. His brother in the, the, the public at large is, is much less famous, Julian Huxley, but he's a very interesting figure. He was the president of the Eugenics Society in the UK. And he actually founded this group, IUCN, that I mentioned, as well as WWF, the uh, you know World Wildlife Fund. Um, he was also the first person that, that gave us the term uh, transhumanism. But I, I just to point out that the whole conservation movement really has quite, I don't want to say scary, but quite shady roots in eugenical thinking, uh, uh, in the eugenical thinking of that time, to the point that this Huxley character set up two of the biggest... Uh, conservation groups, if you like, IUCN and WWF. So that, that's just a footnote that the conservation community doesn't really come out of a science background, unless you want to count eugenics as a science or 
it kind of it's remolded its or rebranded itself for a number of times but in the early outset it was about protecting national parks for affluent members of society and keeping the proles out of them uh i forget i hadn't i'm sorry i haven't given this presentation since you last saw it i'm sure i recognize most of the slides as we go through <laughs> um, oh yeah so just to pull this one out again um without going through the hundreds and hundreds of papers that reference this it is well established um, that whatever is, you know, causing us to diagnose a viral disease in humans, uh, these viral diseases are meant to be of significantly higher impact to non-human primates. Humans are meant to have a much more developed, you know, uh, uh, immune response to human respiratory viruses or to respiratory viruses in general, based on our large group dynamics, the fact that we're traveling around. We think typically, or the, the science, the established science tells us to think, of great ape populations as immunologically vulnerable. Kind of like, you know, the, the natives, you know, when Columbus comes over and introduces swine flu or something like that, that's how we're typically taught to think of these great ape populations. So, so the, ordinarily when an epidemic breaks out or a pandemic, um, you expect to see more of the great apes um, uh, get sick and die than absolutely. humans. Absolutely. And what you saw was the exact opposite. What you saw was the great apes not really getting sick and dying. Yeah. Okay. Uh, absolutely. And uh, it, it, I, I would say that that's really Matthew, because the huge bulk of the last few decades of uh, uh, science has said that this is the case. My personal observations actually lead in a slightly different direction that we don't seem to see these animals getting sick in association with humans. But there are numerous papers saying mm -hmm. that they do. Okay, understood. One of the other things, though, about the uh, great apes and non-human primates supposed to be um, uh, much more vulnerable uh, to, to these human respiratory viruses, or at least meant to suffer from them, is you think non-human primates is the go-to test for anything against humans. You know, obviously they'll use mice first or humanized mice, but all trials end up looking at primates, particularly the chimpanzee, because they're meant to be the best human model that there is. So the idea that this is hammering humans, white-tailed deer and mink, but leaving the chimpanzee alone makes no sense to my admittedly rudimentary understanding of science and biology. Okay. Uh, oh, so here's the, here's the slides that I added in that I didn't show you before. So again, this is the IUCN. This is the best practice guidelines for you know how we're meant to be putting these apes out responsibly and safely. And there's a huge section donated to uh, uh, devoted to veterinary risk uh, of putting these animals out and disease transmission. And just in that opening statement uh, or, or the opening uh, chapter on uh, the veterinary requirements, the first three authors that are cited are Peter Dazak, who needs no real introduction. Uh, Wolf and Lenders. But let me just pull up the two slightly lesser known people. You, you're clearly obviously very familiar with Dazak yourself, aren't you, Matthew? And you're, Yeah, you're, EcoHealth Alliance. For sure, yeah. Um, EcoHealth uh, has consulted for the WHO, IUCN, the, this group that I'm talking about, NIAID. Uh, I mean, he's balls deep in this, we, we would say. But then the two lesser known names uh, in there, and again, there's three scientists that are producing huge amounts of uh, uh, publications on how diseases are coming from, you know, wild animals via zoonosis and how they're also particularly transmissible to great apes and other primates. So you've got these three characters and then Wolf just, you know, I, I just with a sort of a, a digital marker pen highlighted some of these potential conflicts of interest uh, 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 that these guys have. And the 
uh, I'm not sure if Wolf was first. No, Wolf was the one that was also working with um, President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, uh, in Ukraine, or Metabioda, the, the firm that he's CEO and founded of. Uh, was okay, so he, so he works. He, he has worked with uh, the DOD, the NIH, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Metabiota with Hunter Biden in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. And also one of the World Economic Forum's young global leaders in 2010, which, you know, what more can we say? So what's his, what does he do? He is somebody that essentially popped up out of nowhere and is one of the authorities on zoonotic disease transfer between both wild animals to humans, bats and the like, but specifically with regards to primates, uh, spreading diseases to us and us spreading diseases to them. I mean, He's really, when you look at out of nowhere, so I guess that means that that you know he he doesn't show up at your center to study your primates, or you don't know anybody who worked with him, or any you know. No. No, um, not directly. But then I, I'm quite field based. I've never really been very academically based. So, you know, I'm not really part of the, oh, apart from at conferences where you might meet the academics that are working out at universities. I think all three of these characters are much more in the academic field than they are in the field field of conservation, so to speak. Okay. So, yeah, you've got him with Metabiota um, tied to, to Biden. Just, uh, I know it's the name pop up. And then you have Lindertz as well. But uh, so again, in that back to the beginning there, you've got the opening statement on veterinary risk to gray apes and the three authors that they're citing are, you know, linked massively to EcoHealth, World Health Organization, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And two of the people that they chose to cite there were in the initial away team to China. You know, both Fa Fabian uh, Lindertz there and Peter Daszak were the first boots on the ground. And I just found it a strange link that, you know, people that are advising uh, conservation groups like mine, you know, in very established, cited, you know, as co-authors of this, uh, or Lindertz was, was cited as a co-author of this. Um, it just strikes me as very, very weird that they're occupying both of these top spots. You think you'd stay in your lane if you were a conservationist or a human health, you know, officer, you know, or a human health researcher, I should say. Uh, so, yeah, they were the ones that I added in that you hadn't seen before. Just the, these, you know, names popping up literally everywhere and the same funding popping up everywhere. And I highlight that, the, you know, great ape conservation is not even free of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation money or, or you know, funding for, from these same sources that we're seeing moving through the human health domain. So I, I guess the question overwhelmingly, and I still don't have an answer to it, Matthew, that I was asking when I gave this talk to Pandata before was why aren't the apes catching it? Because, you know, I, I went into this, understanding the viral model germ theory as as, as established science sort of had it. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. For the first, you know, three months at least, I, I couldn't work out why uh, none of the apes and primates I worked with had called it. So you think through a lot of stuff. A lot of my colleagues were saying, oh, it's because we're wearing face masks more, which I don't think was the case. Uh, the one thing that popped up a lot is people said, and, and, you know, I even thought it myself as well, we don't have an especially elderly or moribund population. That's what I originally thought, you know. But actually, over time, I realized that if you wanted to look at the most aged and vulnerable gray apes and non-human primates in the world, they would be in zoos. They would be in shelters, you know, because, the, you know, I think the oldest orangutan was clocked at living at 66. They don't typically make that in the wild. So in, in human captivity, if it's good captivity, they have a chance of li living for a lot longer. So we should have seen a, a hit on the elderly if age was an issue. The other thing about great apes in particular, or primates in general, but particularly yeah, it's like a nursing apes, home. 
That's probably the best analogy for the for the elderly primates. A zoo is a nursing home. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. And, you know, the great apes struggle a lot with obesity. And, and we know that that seems to be a massive factor in, in what's been going on of late. But the, the animal at the top, Shirley, um, you know, when I took the, the first video of her, she smoked about 100 cigarettes. I think it was 120 cigarettes in seven hours in the, the crappy, you know, sort of theme park zoo that she was in. Um, we have quite significantly sick animals come into us, massively overweight, and they didn't get hit either. And that, that struck me as odd. Um, one thing that I did think and tie to for a while, or, or two things rather, were that diet, you know, they are, they're not eating processed food, generally speaking, in rescue centers, certainly they're not. So they're having a, a more, you know, a healthy diet, one could argue. And typically they're housed outdoors. So they might be getting, you know, a lot more vitamin D uh, uh, kicking in. But uh, yeah, we, we do have the world's oldest apes and primates are in zoos around the world, and they didn't get smacked by this either. Um you, you, only because you mentioned the uh, red-tailed deer earlier on, that this isn't meant to spread too well outside. There is an argument for, uh, that we could say that most animals are held in outdoor enclosures. They're certainly not sort of sitting in offices with 50 people uh, uh, recycling the same air. But actually, in, uh, yeah, the, this is in Asia in particular, where I live and work, there's a very, very close interface between uh, humans and animals. Not only are they kept as pets, you know, very, very widely, begging on the streets, you know, doing performance tricks, kept in, in roadside zoos for people to have photos with. You also have uh, the, the macaques are the ones that are at the top of this screen, uh, top left. You have monkey temples, monkey islands dotted all around Southeast Asia um, where, yeah, uh, uh, human interface is very, very high with these animals. So it doesn't really make sense that these things wouldn't have been exposed to it. And yet we haven't heard of any major, you know, sort of hit on primates anywhere in the world. We've heard of a hit, uh, as you said, rightly, on uh, mink and on deer, but not in primates worldwide. And that continues to be the case for, for monitoring it, which really makes no sense. Um, I think, oh yeah, so I think I touched on this before. In 2020, we had almost no news whatsoever of uh, uh, COVID or uh, 19 in gray apes. And given the hysteria of the media in that first year, if there had been a chimpanzee that died in Botswana, you know, or, or a gorilla that died in Albuquerque, I think we can be fairly sure that would have been on CNN and BBC, you know, as front, uh, as a, a leading item, like gorilla dies from uh, coronavirus. But we didn't have any of that until 2021, after the injections, then there was that little bump. Uh, another thing, I, I think I mentioned this to you before, but Zoetis, if you haven't heard of them, are used to be the veterinary arm of Pfizer. And they're since a separate company now, although some of the uh, uh, executive members are, uh, that sit on uh, Zoetas also still sit on Pfizer. But we're told that based on a BBC report that um, a dog, I think, had uh, tested positive in Hong Kong in February 2020, we'd believe that this pharmaceutical giant embarked, based on that alone, to come up with a coronavirus uh, vaccine for dogs. And can you imagine how many millions, if not billions, you'd have to invest in coming up with a new product based on the, the media report in Feb 2020 that one dog in Hong Kong was called coronavirus? Yeah, and, and a, a reminder for anybody who's listening, uh, nobody had ever successfully invented a coronavirus vaccine at all, period, at any time for humans or animals or otherwise. And then also when they began the injection, so in the States, they started injecting the gorillas at about uh, uh, gorillas and certain other apes in February 2021. 
And in the Russian newspaper articles and Nat Geo articles that came out about it, all clapping how great it was that, you know, science is saving the great apes by injecting them with this thing. Um, all of the articles were at pains. I don't think I read one where they didn't point out that both the, what they were calling vaccines or the monoclonal antibodies later on that they were giving them, they were at pains to say, this does not come from human stock. This does not come from human supply, which then makes you think, well, if they were injecting gorillas with something that wasn't human originated, you had your warp speed. We had our operation moonshot in the UK where the, this farcical lie or, or narrative was spun that all of the scientists around the world worked in, you know, were unison, uh, breakneck speed to come out with this wonderful new vaccine. It was a miracle of science and global collaboration to bring out a human injection uh, roughly in January, February 2021. How the hell did they manage to do the same thing for gorillas and for other animals? How did they come up with an animal non-specific one at the same time? Indeed, the gorillas in the States were getting injected before most people under 60 would have had an injection. So it's like... They actually beat the human rollout to animals, which doesn't make any sense again, unless, of course, this was just planned to be a rollout from the get-go. Oh, so then, yeah, just coming back into uh, IUCN, the, the logo at the top there, um, I, I, uh, you've got WWF, obviously. And have you heard of the Arcus Foundation before, Matthew? I don't think so, but it's pot, uh, that, that logo does not look familiar. No, so Arcus are one of the, the biggest funders of LBGTQ uh, uh, and so on, sort of uh, awareness, um, uh, how to say, activities uh, around the world. They are big, big players. And they, at the outset of this, a lot of my colleagues, when I was saying, look, you know, th there is no pandemic in the great apes. Like, we really should come out and sort of say this to the world that for some reason, great apes and primates don't appear to be getting hit by this and a lot of my colleagues you know it's difficult sometimes working in the developing world if you speak out you can get kicked out or, or worse so people didn't want to go anywhere near it because they didn't want to go against the, the psychosis that everyone was running in but actually these three groups IUCN, WWF and Arcus all started making uh, it known that there was money available and the more I kicked off and said, look, we're not we're being dishonest with the public. We, we're pretending that coronavirus is a risk or COVID-19 is a risk to uh, great apes. And it's clearly not after all of this period of time. When, when are we going to you know, level with the public and share that information? I I received a lot of offers for money or, or uh, you know, invitations to apply for funding where I was given, you know, pretty firm assurances that don't worry, this one's going to go straight through. You just have to say that the money is to protect your orangutan from COVID, which I refuse to say because like they're not at any risk from COVID. They're a hell of a risk from shutting my charity down and demolishing us. You know that they might be at risk from not having enough food, but I'm not going to come out and say that they're at risk of uh, COVID-19. And a number of my colleagues, the ones that were still speaking to me, that you know, I guess we were friends. We've known each other over decades. Uh, were saying, look, you know, you just got to shut up. You're making yourself a pain. Just take the money and keep quiet. It's easy to take this cash. So mm -hmm. then I, I became more and more suspicious and started looking into the accounts of both colleagues, you know, that, that unfortunately uh, that, that work, you know, that I've worked with over the decades um, and saw that the same flow of money was through every charity that I've worked with. Pretty much every single one of them is taking huge sums. The bulk of their funding is coming from this Arcus Foundation. And then when I started digging through Arcus's accounts, I didn't know this previously. I knew of them as a great ape, uh, probably the largest great ape fund, uh, funder of great ape conservation work. 
And then I saw that all of their money is from their founder, uh, John Stryker, who's also the, the CEO of Stryker Corp, a massive bio uh, uh, medical company that specializes in a whole bunch of stuff, you know, um, neurotech, uh, medical surgical equipment. Um, <clears throat> they're quite heavily involved in transitioning little boys into little girls. And I, I then really started looking into this Arcus Foundation and realized what they're most known for in the West is their LGBTQ work. Um, overwhelmingly, that's what they're, they're known for. So LGBT work, um, uh, transitioning, um, gender sex transitioning, and, uh, and, and to a lesser degree, grade eight conservation. I mean, that, this sounds like, uh, I mean, these things seem so far apart. It's like uh, I've got a foundation that that does work with uh, veterans with P, uh, PTSD, uh, but we also do a little work with uh, elementary school math education. Exactly, they're not a neat fit whatsoever. And I, you know, I've been going to these conferences over the years. Um, normally, when I'm paid to speak, that, that's a bit selfish. But I kind of gave up on them because it was all just talk, and I, I felt that it was better to get stuff done on the ground. And Arcus were a big, big player that they would sponsor nearly every conference. There would always be delegations there of people. And I knew them as a great ape group. It was only really since 2020 that I started looking closer. It was like, well, you're not a great ape group. You're a, a LGBTQ group. And you're putting maybe 5% of what you're spending a year, perhaps less than that, into great ape uh, conservation or, or you know, giving it to groups that do great ape conservation. Now, if you look at their website, I felt a little bit sort of offended that it's like, wow, you really look like a great ape organization. And yet that's not who you're giving all your money to. It's uh, it's a, a, I think great apes are, are quite widely liked. It's almost marketing or misleading to, to, you know, put the pictures of the apes front and center all over your website when that's not really what you're involved in. You're much more about pushing awareness, you know, is a big part in the developing world of LGBTQ causes. Um, and yeah, uh, it's, it's strange. Uh, uh, I think that it doesn't make sense. It's yeah, it's like saying you do work with so, masks. So that's the that's the connection. Is that apes, great apes, are in the developing world, and the developing world is their target audience, perhaps for LGBT messaging. Absolutely, and you get in under wow. the of the great ape groups who are universally liked, loved even in the West, tolerated to a large degree in the developing world. Like we have quite good reps. It's never a perfect working relationship, but even the host governments are quite pro. So then you could end up slipping into a country under the radar of trying to save their monkeys. And then, you know, explicitly in their funding that they uh, provide to uh, uh, great ape groups, they're asking you to also promote their LGBTQ agenda, which historically I had no real issues with. But I never applied to them for funding because I couldn't see how it was linked. It's like, I, I work in a country where homosexuality is illegal. Now, I don't think that should be the case. But if I'm to be working with that government on great ape conservation, the last thing I need to do if I want to maintain my relationship with them is turn up, you know, with, with a pride flag and say, yeah, I need to free all my brothers and sisters. Um, it, it, the two things don't go together, you know, that, that they could directly be in conflict with one another. Okay. <laughs> so, um, oh, this was more to the talk that I gave before, but it, as, as I've been looking at a lot of different stuff over the last few years, it really does, did seem strange to me that around the world, uh, there was, according to the WHO, uh, a, a significant problem with rabies, and there was a lot of messaging coming out. And actually, 
although I work with wildlife in every country I've been in, I've also got involved in mass trap, neuter and release programs um, where you'll tackle street dogs, you know, sterilize them, vaccinate them. We didn't know what we did uh, back then uh, for a whole bunch of stuff. But there was a lot of fear porn messaging in, in a number of the countries that, that I work closely with. The the posters are red alerts, you know, lots of TV messaging about how rabies, you know, is, is making a huge uh, spike and that there's only one thing you can do. You must get vaccinated. Everyone must get vaccinated. Every dog must be vaccinated. And that dovetailed that 2017 to 2019 ongoing fear porn about rabies uh, dovetailed neatly into uh, uh, COVID-19. To the point that in Borneo, where I am, they took down the signs uh, for rabies the day they put up the signs for hands, face, space, you know, stay at home, save lives, get injected. It, I think there's a, there's two subliminal elements. One, you know, a scary dog like Cujo is scary. That makes people, no one wants to get bit by a rabid dog. It's quite a scary sort of thing. So it's a, an angry face of disease and just this no brainer, no questioning vaccine saves lives. Everything's got to be vaccinated. Um, and yeah, even the UK and Australia were reporting outbreaks of rabies, which I don't really feel there were outbreaks of rabies. I think there were just a lot of news articles pushing it um, and just setting that tone, framing everything that the way we fight disease is via vaccination. Um, I don't know if this one's relevant so much other than you might have seen some of the, the newspaper coverage of dogs and cats catching COVID. Uh, not in the first year, 2020, that wasn't really much of a thing. But once we started getting into 2021, uh, more and more people were starting to talk about vaccinating pets for COVID because they might act as a reservoir or they might have heart attacks and get sick in you know moldy uh, in a multitude of different ways. But some of the, the, the two papers that I linked there, you just the only thing that's really relevant is the study size of animals. Now, this is peer-reviewed published stuff, and the science is just bunk. And the study size is just nonsense. You know, uh, seven animals does not prove that there's a worldwide problem, you know, for uh, uh, coronavirus in dogs. But the, the, practically the day these things were published, they were run by all of the mainstream media all around the world. Just a barrage of stories about how dogs and cats were catching COVID based on the, the flimsiest of premises and some of the shoddiest science I've ever seen. That We've seen some pretty bad stuff around humans, but... These studies that cats and dogs are dropping down dead in year two and year three uh, is just nonsense. COVID's clearly not affecting them. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure I, I believe it. I, I think that uh, that viral jumping between animals in a way that um, you know causes one illness, I, I think that that's a lot more rare than we're led to believe. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that uh, most most all of the things that would jump and make um, and and have illness are things that already happen. Yeah. Um, but I, I notice on your slide here it says diagnosis PCR less than forty five count. Yeah. And and to me that's key. Like I don't know how many animals they tested to come up with how however many positive cases. Um, but I've been I was just talking about this uh, on my Substack uh, in the last few days, which is that. Um, you know, once you're getting up to uh, a high cycle count, you know, um, this was from a study put out by Pfizer, I think, um, that you had uh, 2.7% true positives at 35 counts. And that's for a lot of reasons. I mean, there's sensitivity and specificity, but you also have interference when you have the possibility of other fragments from other nucleotide sequences 
uh, that can get in the way, suddenly you have a different level of sensitivity and specificity than would have been measured in a clean lab. Absolutely. And I think, and, and, and I've seen nobody else make this point consistently, these off-target amplicons that get swept up and then replicated. And it wouldn't surprise me if there are even more off-target amplicons in animals or you know, different ones. But, you know, one way or another, we shouldn't assume that the numbers that we hear, these sensitivity and specificity numbers, we shouldn't assume that they would apply to swabbing an animal. We don't know what else is there. Exactly. exactly. Um, you know, so, yeah, the the you know false positive rate climbs up to uh, sometimes in the 90 something percent, 97% at a high cycle count, depending on the, the season, depending on the circumstances. And that was one of the things that I wrote about, which is that, uh, you know, false positive rates, um, they go up and down according to how many people actually have the disease. If nobody has it, you have 100% false positive rate, yeah. right? Um, and so it wouldn't shock me if, you know, with these pets, if we're talking about 100% false positive rate. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it certainly seems to be the case. I mean, th there are a few things that we do transfer, but actually, you know, the difference between dogs and cats, again, going with established science before all of this, is that we don't really transfer diseases uh, to, to each other uh, at all. You know, that, um, that we, we're distinct enough that we can't really catch much of what the other catches, uh, particularly when it comes to viruses that then meant to sort of be specific to, to each uh, species across such a big divide like dog form, cat form and primates you know hmm. yeah uh, i'd be curious to find out if there you know what's documented historically um uh and and i think you know and, and everything you're saying this plays into um the, you know there's a crowd of people um who believe that viruses don't exist mm -hmm. then there's a you know i i believe that viruses exist there are people who believe that they don't. Then in between, there's there are people who believe viruses exist, but that SARS-CoV-2 does not. Um, I, I believe SARS-CoV-2 exists, but these other two groups of people, uh, it's understandable why they would be so weirded out by the information because it does feel like there is a lot of false information. There are a lot of things that don't make sense going on during the pandemic. And um, and it's going to stoke that, that discussion, right? And I think that that's uh, a little bit worrying also because, um, you know, that could wind up being, um, and, and I do think that those debates need to be addressed, right? Um, but, uh, you know, the, it, it's its own discussion as to how to address them. Um, but just the fact that we are in circumstances that stoke those debates demonstrates how problematic a lot of the information is. and. You know, I, I have a very hard time believing that some of this information is not manufactured. And, you know, it, it feels parsimonious to me to believe that, therefore, a lot of it's manufactured. Because if if what you see are these global organizations and some of them are, are sending out manufactured evidence and we know that there, that there are rule books and simulations that were run and things like this, then it would make sense that if it's if it's done a little bit in some places or a lot in some places, then it's probably being done a lot everywhere. So, you know, to me, what was fascinating about watching your presentation the first time you gave it with Pandata was just sort of seeing, okay, here's this sphere where we shouldn't even be seeing this messaging, this, you know, what, what appears like, you know, on face like propaganda. It's more debatable in the human environment. You can get more people who aren't sure 
in the human environment. But you go over here and suddenly you're looking at all the world's animals and it becomes more clear that this is messaging and propaganda, that this isn't about some problem that anyone identified and that the messaging began early, that the messaging began even before the pandemic began. And the fact that you were hearing about things in October, right? And a lot of people still believe like the military games were like sort of the first super spreader event. We're told that there were satellite photos in Wuhan of hospitals um, with more traffic in September. Um, it would, you know, the fact that, that you would be hearing chatter as in prepare for something huge already in October, um, you know, to me that that's, uh, that's, that's information people need to hear and decide how to process it. You know, I got to go back further than that though. So probably about 15, 10 to 15 years ago, I noticed that these conferences I was going to, they got more and more speakers talking about, uh, how the next, you know, big zoo, uh, the next plague in humans is going to come from wildlife centers like where I work, really pushing this sort of, you know, zoonotic disease transfer. So again, being responsible, you listen, you get all of this material, and then some of the stuff that they were suggesting we do, like genetically testing for everything, PCR testing for everything, you know, for every animal that comes in. The first thing is a small group or, or you know, when you, you're struggling to pay for food, you haven't got time for DNA tests and the like, um, is, well, we haven't got the money. And they're like, oh, don't worry about money. If you work with us, we'll bankroll everything. We'll give you a couple of PhD candidates in there and you just keep on applying for, for uh, you know, funding. But it, it did strike me as strange that not only have I been working for a long period of time in mixed species, you know, rescue centers, not just we don't, we don't play with the animals, but they're so overstocked that, you know, you've got them in your bedroom. You've got them in your toilet when you go to take a shower. You've got, you know, a leopard in the next room, a bear in the other room. It's like, how come I haven't witnessed any of this, particularly with the primates that have this whole, you know, death list of diseases like uh Simeon, uh, SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus, herpes B that's meant to be, you know, biohazard four for humans. You know, how come the staff aren't dropping down dead? Um, actually, rather than in my time, what about in the decades before I got here? Why weren't people just dropping down dead constantly from these things? And yet this, this narrative really ramped up 10 to 15 years ago that it's going to come from wildlife. All new emerging diseases are coming from wildlife. But at the same time, you hear that the biomass of wild animals in our lifetimes, we're probably around the same age, has fallen through the floor. Like all wild animals are practically dead and they've been replaced by human beings and our farm animals. So then it's like, well, where are the diseases more likely to come from? The genetically not diverse farmed animals that you pump full of antibiotics, you're feeding them each other's brains and you're keeping them in the dark and living in shite, or a wild monkey hanging out in the tree. Like where, where statistically is this disease gonna come in from? And all this focus was on bats and pangolins. You know, I don't know why, you know, one of the, the weirdest called kind of offshoots of evolution is like, oh, we're going to blame them for all the deadly diseases, right? It's like, wouldn't it be more likely to come from a pig than it would be from, you know, uh, a pangolin? Primate, maybe, I grant you, but human beings have been hunting primates throughout our entire existence. We've had them in zoos. We've had them in, you know, uh, as pets, no doubt. Why haven't we had major outbreaks from them in the past? I mean, arguably, people would say that some people could say that HIV came from the great apes. I'm, I used to believe that. I used to talk about it. Now I'm like, well, this is complicated. I'd, I'd need to do a lot more research before I'm willing to understand that HIV is as told. Um, another thing I will touch on, though, so you're from the States. Did you ever, I forget what state it was, that story where uh, a van had kind of crashed and some lady got out 
thought there was a cat in a box and it turned out to be a monkey and it spat at her or whatever nonsense it was, right? <laughs> yeah, I yeah, that's right. It does sound like a cartoon, doesn't it? it? Beyond a cartoon, it fits the kind of like outbreak or 28 days later zombie apocalypse model of a single scratch or a single bite and suddenly there's a biological plague. It's like, well, what about all those temples where people, tourists are playing with them and feeding them and they're getting crapped on and scratched all the time? What about people that work in my profession? How, how come we haven't had this? And yet some lady on the IR-96 or something is like, oh, a monkey spat at me. Oh, guess what? There's a monkey pox, you know, a plague coming. It's, it, humans love stories, but we're, I, I'm sure that all of this is, is being controlled by stories and narratives. We prefer that there's a bad man like Putin or Biden or Trump. Pick, pick your bad man or your good man. And we like to believe that they're masterminding a war, they're masterminding, you know, an overthrow of democracy. It's never one individual. But that's just that's the, to make it simple for Muppets, you know, not Muppets like us, but people that haven't looked into it too much. But then we still push it that one monkey somewhere, you know, uh, spat at a lady or someone was butchering the carcass and they had a cut on their hand and now HIV is everywhere. It's like if this shit was real about zoonotic transmission, it'd be happening continuously. And it would have been happening thousands of years ago. Yeah, um, I'm not going to name a name here, but this reminds me of somebody, um, a, a pundit, uh, who used to talk about economics and would be published, you know, in places like The Economist. And uh, and and I, I had some online chats with him. And, and I, you know, I, I kept thinking, gosh, you know, he's saying stuff that sounds reasonable to people. But I, you know, I, I would say stuff to him and it would be clear that he didn't know what he was talking about. And then it came out that he was not like an economic. I thought that he was being published because he was an economist. Turns out he was a philosophy major in college. So I started following his career, just sort of seeing like, you know, like, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Why is he here? And uh, and he left a position to go back to school and study uh, science fiction writing. And, and I thought that that was very interesting. I, I you know it's it's sort of a weird thing to go to college to study, you know? It's mm -hmm. sort of like, um, I, I kind of get why some people would major in writing, maybe a very small number. Um, you know, you, you want the skill set, but nobody becomes a great writer by going to school for writing, right? People become great writers because they have life experience and they have something to talk about or because they get so just so interested in, in, you know, the crafting of stories that it's like an obsession and, and, you know, like those are the people who become great at it. Right. Uh, but I, I, it's, I sort of wondered to me, well, you know, there's this university program for science fiction writers and there aren't a whole lot of people who can make a living writing science fiction. I would think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe they're just all over the place and I haven't noticed, but um, you know, there's only a handful who become well known. Um, not many Isaac Asimov's in the world. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting. You know, I, I, I wonder if, if that is sort of an intentional thing, uh, which is the, the schooling of propagandists to go hand in hand with the science fields and then the need to push money through, you know, all the different science fields, including you know, uh, people who are doing what you're doing and handling, you know, primates and animal sanctuaries and, and, uh, you know, but, but to, to fill it up with, with all of the levels of messaging that you would want or need um, for purposes of social engineering. I mean, that's, yeah, if that was the case, and there is a case to be made that it could be, 
that is some serious pre-scripting and, and nudging, you know. Um, and it could easily be achieved not by people nefariously behaving in any way in the great ape sector, at least, or the conservation sector, just by incentivized useful idiots. I, right. I, I could have easily been one. Someone's like, oh, you know, how's your place? And he's like, oh, we've got no money. We're, we're overrun with animals. And like, you need to clean your act up. We'll give you some money and we'll help you out. I could have. Yeah. I never and, quite trusted them. But and, I, and we know that enormous amounts of money. There was one bill in the U.S. that gave media a billion dollars. And that was just from one bill. You know, we have no idea how much money got spent on all the different messaging. Uh, we know that four and a half trillion dollars were given to just three investment banks, you know, to do what they would want with. But if there were need to to, um, you know, push any any further messaging for the purpose of helping whatever investments they chose with that four and a half trillion. Right. That was uh, after the repo markets. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but in, in September of 2019, the repo markets um, uh, kind of went upside down. And in order to inflate the banks, the Fed gave four and a half trillion to just three, the three big you know banks. And um, and yeah, that wasn't even that wasn't revealed to the public uh, for two years. You know, it wasn't told December of 2021 that that information became public. You had, you know, the people who knew that it went to somewhere um, had to kind of remember that and then, you know, know where to ferret that out. Um, but we know that uh, like the behavioral insights team, you know, which had been a part of the UK government, that's actually where it began. It was it was a that's, that's much unit. Yeah. 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 That's the nudge unit. And um, and, you know, those guys uh, came from the you know, U.S. universities uh, originally. Um, you know, th there's probably a whole lot of, of working in a lot of countries. In fact, they, they list on their website, uh, the Behavioral Insights team. Um, they list all these different like, you know, locations that they work with people around the world. You know, that's a lot of ability to coordinate messaging. And we know that they have been working on you know, pandemic messaging. And then we even find out, you know, intelligence agencies, the Canadian um, intelligence agencies were working on this also. So, you know, that, that's a whole lot of money. That's a whole lot of, you know, everything coming from everywhere. You know, it, it just seems too much. You know, it's like, it's like can, can somebody stop the show? Like, press the pause button for a moment because we're in some kind of, we're in some kind of production. <laughs> I, I think, Without going into any specific examples, because I don't want to sort of compromise any of my former colleagues, but intelligence agencies sometimes flip through conservation groups, particularly your, your real environmental campaigners, because you're protesting against government corruption quite often. You know, huge financial interests, logging, mining, stuff like this. There's a lot of, you know, fingers in that pie. And often, you know, not speaking ill of some of my colleagues or perhaps even myself, you have a couple of ideological muppets who are running around in a foreign country going, ah, we've got to stop the multi-million dollar like soy farm expansion. And, you know, people get clipped on a fairly regular basis, but they also get monitored and they... Clipped? What's clipped? Uh, clipped means uh, killed, uh, uh, removed from the equation. Uh, more environmental journalists. Uh, and, you know, some countries are much worse than others for this or so we're told. But yeah, I mean, you're going up against very, very big interests, you know, uh, in the conservation field. I mean, on a trivial level, you're going up against, you know, some person that's shooting an orangutan. That's not so difficult. It's the forces that are involved behind, you know, uh, human encroachment on, on wild, you know, habitats and stuff like that. You know, mostly it's logging and palm. Why, why would it be intelligence agencies and not private investigators? 
well, yeah, sorry, it could be corporate as well. But I, I think well, I'm thinking more of British history. Um, hang on, how to wrap that up in a point? I'm thinking you've heard a story, and I, I and I'm curious as to you know like what what stories you might have heard, what experiences you might have had. I've met a lot of people that seem to be spies in the conservation movement. You know that. Um, very well paid. It's not quite clear what they're doing. They turn up at all the conferences. They're remarkably amiable, friendly people, and uh, and they know everyone. You know that they know the ambassadors that are there. They know the EU. You know uh, uh, consulate or, or uh, what's the word? Uh, oh no, ambassador I used it already. They know the governors. They know you know uh, high high ranking MPs. You know, like what, what do you do again exactly? It's like oh, I kind of love trees and nature, and it's it's not always quite clear what they do. You know. Um, and again, well, sorry, with WWF in particular, when you look at who some of the trustees and patrons are, when people have tried to expose, you know, some scandals, I'm not saying the whole entity is scandalous, although it may well be, but they've had more than their fair share of scandals. They just get buried, you know, super fast. You, you won't hear anyone, you know, really criticize WWF and, and keep their head above the parapet for very long. And if they do, then they're not working in conservation anymore. It's only disgruntled employees that have totally left behind the charitable sector saying, hey, these guys are, I don't want to say criminals because I'll be libeling them maybe, but there's some very dodgy stuff going on there. And, and some of the people that have their noses in the trough don't seem to be particularly interested in animals, you know? So it's a very highly controlled industry. That's very interesting. Huh, I'm going to have to chew on that. Um, yeah. Well, uh, um, it, it, is there anything that you'd like to focus on um, to to wrap things up with anything that hasn't been said that that you feel like is important uh, to the the story of the big picture or, or what you've observed during the pandemic? Well, I, I like you tend to believe in viruses. I don't know that they're the whole story in sort of sickness, but uh, I, I guess that's where I came from. I, there's certainly a lot of animal cases that I'm not willing to say, you know, this is not caused by by viral issues. I'm open to terrain. I'm open to an intermeshing of the, the two things, but I, I won't sort of give up on them. But just to, to, I think I mentioned it earlier on, just to bring back after after 20 odd years of working with a huge number of wild animals, uh, both coming in from wild, coming in from trade, coming in from people's houses, and um, from the last two and a half years of just, you know, really rethinking stuff that you thought you knew. I can say that from fairly expensive, extensive hands-on experience working with animals, disease doesn't seem to be such a big issue, you know, um, and shouldn't it be? It is, so if we're, you know, kept saved from disease by modern medicines and, you know, the, the lifestyles that we have and cleaner food chains and everything's wrapped in plastic and shite like that, how the hell are wild animals surviving? You know, they're, they're, they're living, you know, totally rough they're preying on things they're coming across scat and urine of of all of these other animals how come disease hasn't collapsed the entire planet it's 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 quite probably real you know but i'm definitely inclined to believe in bacterial disease i know there's some people out there that don't but you know yeah i've experienced enough stuff that disease is real but it's very rare and it tends to pop up when, in my experience, when animals are smashed by other factors. So it could be a wild cat like a leopard. They hate captivity. So they come in from wild and they'll get real sick real fast. But it's because they're stressed. Um, they're maybe not sleeping. You know, high cortisol level, cardiomyopathy, stress-related heart attacks. Yeah, there's clearly a lot that goes on with stress. And I've actually, I've actually wondered, um, like, you know, we have all kinds of viruses, especially like in our gut and... and there, there just there are so many viruses, 
um, the vast majority of them. I don't know if it's 99.9% or 99.999%. They're not bothering us, or at least they're not bothering us unless there's something else wrong. And I wonder sometimes if if um, we don't have the full story on the science, which is that uh, maybe um, uh, there are things that would need to to be present, like virus-bacteria interaction, uh, because yep. viruses do invade bacteria. Bacteria clearly uh, are trying to control for this, or you know, I say trying. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how much mastermind planning they can do, uh, but, uh, but they have their own immune system that handles viruses, right? And they do it as a group. They do it game theoretically. They even have virus. They, they appear to, uh, like some bacteria will, will sacrifice themselves for the team, <laughs> you know? Um, and I guess when you're that small, you have to do it in that sort of game theoretic way instead of all within your own system. But, but I wonder, I wonder if there's, uh, if there is very, very little. Um, actual contagious viral illness that is that is on its own just virus and if if that's why there is the need to engineer so much story and also possibly the need you know the need to control an industry like yours uh for instance also um uh and and this may also be why the there aren't any viruses people you know why why all this information stokes them because uh, it may be that there are viruses, but that, that the existence of them, um, we're, we're not told the right story. And so there is a lot of information that they can poke holes in. Anyhow, um, well, Leo, thanks so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, do you have any, you know, uh, closing thoughts uh, that you want to share before we wrap things up? No, other than pleasure to talk to you as always, Matthew. Thank you for uh, keeping your head while all about losing theirs. We'll keep on. I cannot believe that it's two and a half years into this shit show and we're still like, okay, come on, people, let's just sit down. Let's be sensible, calmly debate stuff. Uh, it's um, incredible that we're still here. But thank yeah. you for your sterling effort into trying to steer us into calmer waters. Let's uh, hope we continue to make progress. Yeah, it's hard to see where we're at right now. You know, thanks for sharing your story. We greatly appreciate it. Um, all right, folks, uh, I'm going to, uh, uh, let's see, I, I, I'm still learning to use the studio here. So uh, let's see if I can uh, play an outro here. <laughs>